As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat, Sexuality, Work, Extraction, Art, Theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is broadly defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and capital A, art. How exactly do we define our work? And how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? Anchored in our always already racialized and sexualized bodies, our complex intersectionalities, these conversations are means of relating through work to each other. I hope that they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. The hologram is a method for undoing some of the isolation and alienation and lack of care and privatization that comes out of living in a world that's based on debt. This month's conversation is with Cassie Thornton. Cassie is an artist and activist who makes a safe space for the unknown, for disobedience, and for unanticipated collectivity. She uses social practices including institutional critique, insurgent architecture and healing modalities like hypnosis and yoga to find soft spots in the hard surfaces of capitalist life. I just feel like a biennial organized by sick people would be so much better because maybe we could do something that's at scale of what's possible. Cassie has invented a grassroots alternative credit reporting service for the survivors of gentrification, has hypnotized hedge fund managers, has finger painted with the grime found inside banks, has donated cursed paintings to profiteering bankers, and has taught feminist economics to yogis and vice versa. Her 2020 book, The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future, is available from I was is available from Pluto family Press. that was sort of like beyond broken, more like um, a rise home of people with whom I, I had different biological or, yeah, all different types of relationships with them. They were all different types of parents to me, but I had like four dads, two moms, and they all hated each other. And so I feel like my work as a kid started really young in diplomacy, but there was also lots of other like interesting things, you know, different at different points. You know, like my I have an adopted dad that like paid child support. And I remember thinking that in a weird way, like he paid rent for me. And so my labor as a kid was really funny because it was sort of like passed around. Like I did a lot of work between the adults and in a weird way, like in order to get our rent paid, like me and my mom's rent paid, I had to show up to different parents' houses so they would pay child support and stuff. Wow. And so, I I mean, it's so much what my whole life and all of my work has ended up being based on are the skills that I got as a really, like, a young worker. Right, which is a kind of care work. Seeing people, seeing below the surface, advocating for them, defending them. So now you... You've started, you initiated this like really visionary idea around care work in Berlin called the hologram, which happened during COVID. Do you want to talk about where that project is at right now? Yeah, I think it's important to say that it, when it began, it was very much in the U.S. and it was very much in pre-Trump era, like around 2016, a bunch of experimentation that happened basically because no one I knew had any access to medical care. And so it really started as an idea and as an experiment 
then with lots of different Americans who were like willing to admit that we had a crisis that had to do with the medical system before it was really something that I feel like we, even on the left, on the far left, were really, really talking about maybe outside of disability justice. You know, it was before COVID. It was after Occupy Wall Street. So there was some language around capitalism and financialization and debt going around. But I think we were really wondering what was going to happen. Single payer healthcare wasn't on the table. So everyone I knew just was struggling to get any access to any care. And we were wondering, like, if we could provide some of this ourselves. And so it evolved and evolved through lots of different groups of people working together with me. Eventually a book came out of it. But yeah, like we started to practice it in 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, just because I had a residency in London and the person that was hosting me really believed that we should just try it out, try the hologram out. I was really shy about it at first. I didn't want to dom anybody with my idea. Obviously, it was always our idea, but it came through me. I carried it for a long time, but definitely through many people. And then many, many of the collaborators that I had, because all the work we were doing was online during the pandemic, lived in Berlin. So then I moved to Berlin basically because of them. And maybe it's just useful to say that like the hologram is uh, it's like a peer to peer mutual aid network where three people take care of one person at a time. And it's a kind of protocol for a meeting as well. So like, a you know, an hour and a half or two hour ritual where three people can be really curious about one person's life. And then the idea would be that each of those people that are like receiving that attention, make sure that the three people that were caring for them have care themselves. And so that's how it's kind of viral or why it creates a network. But What's happening in the project that I think on like a meta level that's really interesting is that I had carried the project. It had my name on it. I wrote a book about it. I've been talking about it and working on it for seven or eight years, but with slowly more and more collaborators, more and more help, and with always the, with always the wish that it would eventually not be an individual artist project. And I think the amazing thing is, is that it happened and that it really is being run by assembly now. And it's a really international assembly of people like from Mexico and South America, as well as U.S. and Canada and Europe and U.K., It's a lot of queer moms supporting each other, um, using this practice and trying to develop it to, to make it more specific for more communities. I think that we kind of made it in some way, just in that we don't really rely on the art world anymore the way we once did, or nor academia. Like, it really is something that now exists through the people that use it and them wanting to bring it to their own communities. How do you mean rely on the art world or the academic world? Or who's the we that you mean? So the we that is kind of like organizing the hologram, that I've been practicing it for a few years, lots of different types of people. But I would say we have a core group of like 15 people. Yeah, we basically, we have a little bit of foundation funding that we've been just sort of like using at a drip pace for a couple of years since 2021. And so we invite people to make proposals and then decide how we can support them with how much money we can give them, basically as much as we can, so that they can do a project that engages the hologram in a way that might teach us something, us being whoever's proposing it plus us. So that's the we. And then it's a big jump from the beginning, having the project funded by, well, by me giving lectures in the art world and academia and then redistributing that money or us getting commissions from different art institutions to like teach a workshop or teach a course 
and to have that hosted by an art or academic institution. Now we organize our own stuff. We do basically whatever we want. And um, we we hope that other people will come to us with more proposals for doing what they want with the hologram. And then we can support them financially and logistically. It's so interesting to me that this care work gets situated in like either theoretical academic frameworks or the art world. Not that I'm surprised, but there's already something around it that places it inside of an elite project. But obviously, that's not what it's intended to be or necessarily how it's practiced. How do you respond to that? I feel bored and disappointed by what art and academia does to practices. But I think I also see a real potential for transformation at the moment. For example, like on behalf of the hologram, I participated in a big triennial in Cleveland, Ohio, the front triennial, where the theme was healing. And the curator in the process got really sick and will never curate at that scale again. And while there were really good intentions within that triennial, we didn't have any support to do a project that was actually about reproducing a new form of care in a situation where most people that were involved in the development of the project were overworked, underpaid, at their maximum capacity, and doing way more than really was possible. And I think that it just makes me mad that when we're working in the world of the spectacle, you know, of art or academia, we so rarely actually work from the inside out. Like thinking about the way we do what we do, I just feel like a biennial organized by sick people would be so much better because maybe we could do something that's at scale of what's possible. And I think a lot of what I think we've been learning in the hologram is the ways that a long-term practice actually transforms things, but the way that discourse and spectacle really just maintains reality the way it is. We're we're just about finished with a book that's actually about that exhibition in Ohio and about the contradiction of talking and thinking and and showing versus doing and practicing and being. And it's a real challenge. It's like it's it's a book that's about why we left the art world Mm -hmm. and how you can, too. (laughs) And I think it's really important because like a lot more is possible. I think there's a lot of utopian art projects that are super well-meaning, but are really afraid of actually getting into our lives and rearranging them. Absolutely. In my experiences, it always feels like there's a fear of vulnerability. And even that vulnerability is sort of looked at as like gauche or kind of crass in an art context. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's changing a little bit, actually. But it feels like it's been like still still not, still very self-conscious of the way in which it shows vulnerability. Talk about performative work. Yeah. Okay, I want to go more into that, but if I can like, keep the streams together, I'll try. I kind of want to go back to the body that you were when you said you started carrying this idea. Did you see yourself as an artist body, a working body, and what kind, and why this idea started germinating there? I think... At the time, I did not call myself an artist. I mean, I was very much working inside of the barriers of art, but I, in a way that was just very scared and anxious, and I called myself a feminist economist. And the reason was that I was I was really interested in practices and ways of being that, that work towards an economy that centers the production of life and health. And it was very, I was a very theoretical, conceptual artist with just mountain loads of anxiety. I had, I'd gone to get my master's in art 
at the California College of the Arts. And I think the the hologram in a funny way, it came after I had kind of given up on the art world, had some really grounding experiences that helped me see that it wasn't really like a, a safe place to experiment, really. And yeah, I think like at the time I was doing a lot of work. I was an activist that worked on a giant anti-debt project called Strike Debt for a bunch of years. So I was really engaged with like how to kind of be an artist as a part of a social movement in a way that was quite experimental. But I think that when the hologram came to be an idea, I had been studying and like mired in debt as a person in a society built on debt. I mean, my dad had just literally died of medical debt and my whole family is just mired in it. I mean, I think it was the way to talk about living in capitalism, but it was a chosen filter so that we could talk about something that was much bigger than just you know, individual debt, but actually like thinking about debt as a thing that basically like fuels much of society, the, the sense of, of owing and being owed to. And I think like really what had happened to me is that I, I had done so much work really trying to understand what the, the common suffering is, whether you're on the top of the game or under, underneath the game, really trying to understand the effects of debt and indebtedness on everybody. And I think I became an expert and it entered my body, the debt. And it was like, it was big and it was heavy. And I spent a decade or, you know, maybe 15 years really just focused only on debt for all of my work. And so I was desperate for something that was an antidote to that. And I think the hologram is the antidote that I found. And it it also comes out of debt. Like it comes from the Greek financial crisis, from the way that activists and doctors and caregivers organized free care in relationship to a, a national a bankruptcy and a colonial debt relationship with the EU. So I think that like the hologram is a method for undoing some of like the isolation and alienation and lack of care and privatization that comes out of living in a world that's based on debt. And I think it comes out of the lockdown that I was in personally but that also many of my friends, well, everyone I know is in, was in, is in. How did that that feeling of debt manifest in your body? And to whom did you owe that? You know, I think there's so many ways to talk about to who I owed it. But maybe I'll start with my body, which is that I think I couldn't move. You may have met someone before that has incredible anxiety, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you know, I don't think that I had anything special, um, but just like uh, an amazing amount of anxiety and fear driving every decision, you know, just frozen. And I think that like when we start to talk about debt, like what I realized really quickly is that it's not about just money and and the scale of debt that we have to each other because of the history of colonialism and racism. In the United States, you know, thinking about reparations and the debt that we owe for the transatlantic slave trade, the the way that the country was built on the erasure of indigenous people, you know, like the debt is deep and, and it's in all of us. And then you build on top of it all layers of personal debt that keep us from actually being able to live or make decisions based on our wishes, which might be for reparations or for, you know, doing things differently. And I think our whole society is built on it. It's like if you like sidewalks, public education, hospitals, any of that stuff, you know, it could be built in a different way, but instead it is all built on debt, whether it's public or private. 
When you first started having this idea and you were you were carrying it around, who who were you talking to and who were these bodies and how were these bodies carrying around these ideas with you? I think right away about my neighbor, Tara Spalti. I was living in San Francisco and Tara was really like the radical acupuncturist in town. And she would go to a hunger strike against the police chief at the time in San Francisco. And Tara famously like goes and does acupuncture for the hunger strikers. You know, huge homeless encampments. She would just go there Fridays, do it. And was really like acupuncture for the people and taught me a lot about community acupuncture and that movement and how a lot of those ideas came from the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. And I was so inspired. And at the same time, I had heard this rumor that there was this Greek clinic that had opened, that was free, that was where you could be seen by a doctor, a social worker, and a therapist at the same time in Thessaloniki. And I, so I like, I, I found out about that. And I had friends that were like a good friend named Tori at the time who lived in St. Louis, who was a big organizer after the shooting of Mike Davis in 2014 and was a housing activist. I just had a lot of friends around me that were as precarious as possible, but also really like throwing themselves and their bodies into really important work. And the ideas and the work really passed through a lot of us having conversations, you know, casually and then sometimes more formally. But I think about Tara and sitting on her bed, her giving me acupuncture and us talking about the combination of what was happening in the Greek social solidarity clinics where they were giving free care and they were practicing this thing called the integrative model where three doctors saw one person at a time and like really gave the power to the patient we're talking about that in combination to the history of community acupuncture and just daydreaming together. And I feel like the hologram has just come through so many intimate connections and laying around together with friends. And then also, you know, more formal situations where I think at different times, um, as a younger artist trying to live, when I was living either in New York or San Francisco, you know, no little art spaces. Like I was working more in like DIY spaces. They don't have money to pay me, but I would say, you know, like, could we try out the hologram as my payment? So I did a lot of whoever was around me trying to, like, experiment. And a lot of those people were, like, just interesting, creative people that were also super precarious, trying to survive in a city that wanted to kick them out or eat them up. Wow. So did you feel like by starting to practice, you were able to transform those feelings of debt in your body? And where does that put you now? Do you feel like a different body than you did at the time? I feel so different. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like the hologram was like a program that sucked me in and spit me out a new person. When I was thinking and writing about it, earlier on, like I talked a lot about that we're a cooperative species and we just have to remember that. There's so many things that I was saying in there that like I didn't really know. It's like I, I had a hit, like I got a creative hit. I understood what I was doing conceptually and theoretically, but like it took so many years of practicing it to like get it in my body. Mm-hmm. I would say it, it took the full three years of having my own hologram to get it. But I actually feel like an interdependent being now. And I grew up in a way and lived in a situation where I think everybody was forced into a kind of like really alienated hyper-individualist survival mode, poverty and, you know, just in so many different ways. But I think I'm different now. I really feel like a kind of power to, to ask for help, but also to just supply it. 
And I don't feel scared of that anymore. I really feel like a part of society. And I think I just didn't. I just felt like a little, like, scared automaton or something like that. And I think, like, you know, not so long ago, I interviewed, like, six of my friends who have been practicing the hologram for three years. And it's, you know, it really has had a really profound effect on us. It's like, you know, we have had, you know, at least every season for three years, a meeting with the same three people where they've asked us questions and seen our patterns and made wishes for us. And then, you know, after that happens that many times, even if it's just 12 meetings with the same people, you're actually seen. And I think that is a big deal. It's huge. It's huge. I think there's like a fear of performativity, a fear that things are fake, that kind of societally we feel which is understandable. And yet I think there's also a counter action, which is by performing things, we also are worlding and actualizing and making things. And they might not feel real at first, you know, as we're doing, but actually they we can make them real. And it doesn't make the process somehow, it doesn't invalidate the process somehow. Totally. The, the thing about like, sort of speaking something into being is really interesting to me. I mean, I think, like, if there's something good that's left about art, it is that you can speak things into being. I mean, the art world gave me a place where I could tell bold-faced lies about something as if it already existed until it did. I mean, the, the hologram, it was a parafiction. It was something that I, I talked about as if it existed, as if there were tons of people doing it until there were. There's something about that that is, it's true. It's like, this is part of how the world works. It's how Occupy Wall Street started. Is that, you know, somebody generated an image of uh, Zuccotti Park with like 400 people instead of 20. And so then people came, you know? But then I think the thing about the production of rituals that want to help people or like want to give people... Um, a medicine they don't know they need or want is so interesting. And I think in a weird way, the hologram, it takes about an hour and a half or two hours to do. Basically, it's a build up to get three people to do that for one person. Because by the end, you, you know, you get to give a wish or notice a pattern that you heard or make a provocation. By the end of the hologram, you ask a ton of questions. You learn all this stuff about somebody. And then you're like, you know, I think you should t- turn all your light bulbs pink in your house. Like, what if you did that? And, you know, I think it's like it's about focus, sharing attention, but also being willing to kind of play within our common muddy water. What happens in the hologram is I think you relate so hard to the person who's talking and then you get to share what you know that might help them in the end. But I think the other part is that you realize that, like, you can be very different from them, but you might be suffering from really similar things or in really similar stucknesses of not knowing what to do on multiple levels. So in some way that you're giving to them, you're also really, like, figuring stuff out for yourself and for the other people in the group. And I think this is so interesting, like, that you could collectivize that ritual magic and it can become so useful. Absolutely. Yeah. You said... You were offering some of these practices early on in trade, if I was understanding correctly, in New York. Then COVID happened, right? And so your idea had to switch into a digital context. And can you describe how that changed the practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the baby experiments that we did 
between 2016 and the, the beginning of the pandemic, they didn't really work. I gathered a group of people and was like, can we try this? But it didn't have a protocol for the meeting yet. I was like, okay, so we need to like say hello. We were going to have three people ask one person questions. And then we need to somehow like close it. But it wasn't very thoughtful in terms of how to move people through the ritual. So important. Yeah, so important. Like you need the structure. And I really believe in structure. But I think like in a weird way, I was a bit shy in offering too much structure. Why do you think that was? I mean, there's something almost trained into you in like art school and stuff about like it's a field of landmines when it comes to like offering a tool versus reproducing a form of domination. And I think a lot of us when we're young get really confused about that line. So there's a lot of fear around um, taking up too much space or, or imposing. Do you think that's gendered also? Oh, yeah, totally. But, uh, you know, like, I I was late to having, like, a kind of political education. So I think that like, a lot of that stuff in my late 20s, I just, I was learning about power dynamics for the first time. I was learning about, you know, racism, really, and how that looks for the first time, and, like, thinking about how those things reproduce themselves in, in how we act. And I think my first response is, like, a, a sort of overly cautious which I think, you know, that was an important step on the way to figuring out how to propose structures that are supportive of everybody or supportive of the people that want to use it without feeling like like imposing on people's time. But I think, you know, there's a certain moment when it's like, oh, wait, people have shown up here because they want to do it. I better have a structure that makes it work. And I think the thing that happened with the pandemic was that I had a residency at Furtherfield in London, which is like the oldest artist run space there. And Ruth Catlow, the curator, really pushed me to formalize it so that it could exist as a curriculum or as a pedagogical tool. And then I worked with Lita Wallace, one of my best friends from the UK, who's just like a master facilitator to sort of figure out how to offer the hologram online. And then through trying to figure out how to offer it as a workshop, we had to figure out what the heck it was and be able to sort of start to prototype some of the more specific structures to how to run the meeting. And really, like, through teaching workshops, I think we taught four consecutive, like, six-week workshops where we felt like each one we were, we were actually learning about how the protocol would work by trying a bunch of stuff out. So it really, I mean, it was such a collective process because each group of people was like 30 people. We sort of like told them what we thought we were going to do, but then we got a ton of feedback and some of it was like, no, no, no. And some of it was like, yes, yes, yes. And I think it, you know, to be honest, I don't think that experiment is necessarily over. There's so many elements of it that are always changing. And I think we want that. Yeah, and there's very physical aspects to this protocol. Like, one is the stuck dance. Hell yeah. I love it so much. <laughs> I wish we could do a sound one. Um, I think, like, the the stuck dance is, like, something that um, was borrowed from social presencing theater, which is, like, a part of the series of exercises that are, like, meant for all different types of groups to, like, experience different forms of democracy. I see a lot of the exercises in it as being pretty directly related to theater of the oppressed. So the stuck dance is basically like a somatic practice where you think of a situation in your life in which you feel stuck. And to me, stuckness is a situation where you just don't know what to do. So you think of that situation, you let that situation kind of go as an idea, but maybe the, like if you can keep the feeling, and then you just do something with your body. And 
you you hold it and some people make more of like a movement and some people just like make a sculpture but you know i think that what i have seen from this is that there's so much information in that body movement even though the body movement isn't a pantomime it's not trying to communicate something it's just like so much information is in there so the person holds it and then the three people that are watching they just say what they see in the sculpture without analysis so they say you know I see that your hands are very tense and your jaw is very tense. You seem like you're in a precarious position you couldn't hold long, but you're balanced right now. You know, and there's so much in that. And so everyone in the group does that to begin. And like, that's how we kind of check in with each other. And I think what's so interesting about it is that in some way, those portraits, those four portraits of where people are at at the beginning of the session have all the information of the whole session in it. We could just live in that if we had the the attention span to like really just focus and really like hold and learn from that. But I think then the rest of the conversation comes out of that in a way. Well, there's a lot about everything in it. But one thing that stands out to me is around class because of access to certain kinds of or like context depending, but like access to certain kinds of languaging around body and like being in the body and uh, access maybe to classes or workshops before where people even talk about somatics or feeling through the body. Yeah. The stuck dance, while I think it's the best part of the hologram in so many ways, it's also the part that tries to be hacked the most. There's been so many different moments when people really want to change it. I feel that it's like the, it's the lowest common denominator that we've come across so far that Maybe my uncle, who lives off the grid in a swamp in Indiana, I think he might be able to do it, even if it's just with his hand. Most of my work, I feel like, is always about, like, could my mom, would my mom do this? She works at Walmart. Would she do this? Could she? And I think, like, if when we hit on something that I think it's possible, even if it's a stretch, I'm like, ooh, okay. And I think that the stuck dance is a stretch, but it's not a jump. I do think that it's possible and it's a really cool way of introducing like a tiny, tiny amount of embodiment um, and like that type of complexity and the language around it, like to people that might not otherwise feel very comfortable doing it. And, and, and I don't think it's always class based. It's also like so much to do with like gender and career. Like it's it's interesting because like there's something about like really being able to open up a possibility for people that's like structured and small enough and formal enough that maybe we can bring more people in. Yeah, yeah. You're you're just making me think a lot about like what kinds of things in our lives like across many different kind of spectrums of class bring us into proximity with physicality and I, yeah, I was thinking a little bit about like well, what different kinds of communities get formed where there's physical ritual practices all over the place which are like not um you know an expensive workshop at a dance uh, community yeah, etc yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> although so much specific languaging has been developed there where it, it's created an exclusivity to this kind of access to knowledge even though that knowledge is co-owned across many different kinds of communities but i think about occupy a bit because one thing that was so present was this idea of the 99% right but then when i think about the 99% I really think about how diverse that that is, like, and how how different 
precarities are, different kinds of precarities, how it continues to be difficult, I think, to actually speak across those different groups of precarities. And we still find ourselves in similar milieus here in an English-speaking milieu and in um, a kind of precarity, but that's also proximate to arts or academics, access to global movement, being able to cross borders. So there's so many different ways in which we are divided. And I'm, I am curious, how much is the hologram been able to cross some of those lines? Yeah, definitely. It's slow. It's really slow. But I think it's the only way to go. We've just experienced the second translation of it. So like the first translation was to Greek, which is really special because it means that it kind of goes back to where it came from. The second translation project was to Spanish, and it's by a group of people that have been around for years in the hologram. Some, Well, some for years and some for a year, who are based in Mexico and then some that are from Venezuela living here And I think that what is happening is that the hologram grows with relationships. You know, it really is this sort of like viral network. It just takes a really, really long time for to like pass intuition and resources on in a way that feels like empowering and meaningful and where like the people who want to use the project feel like they can really take it and do what they want with it in their own way. That takes a long time. But I think it's happening and it's happening really gradually. So it was started as an all-weight project, and it's not anymore by any means. So while I think that it is spreading geographically, and it has a lot to do with the translations, the next step would be for it to spread in a class way. Like, I think that that's going to be a big jump. I don't think that's the first translation. It's like a, like the, the first translation to Spanish, for example, is like the, the language has been really queered. It's been basically kind of taken apart and put back together. And when I say translation, it's like the book, but also like all the materials we've made for like how to do a hologram and everything. Everything has been translated so carefully and so radically. But that's not going to necessarily reach everybody, right? But in the last Spanish-speaking course we had, it was geared towards people who do mothering work of all kinds. And a bunch of the people who were facilitating it, their moms came. So there's ways that it like can then move generationally in that. So, you know, it's a flow. It's a really long process. And it's happening. By the time it gets to like the third or fourth generation, like everything starts to change and we don't know anymore like who's using it or how. It really needs to mutate as it gets used. I hope, you know, in 20 years we see it and we don't even understand it anymore because it's just been totally like reworked. What kind of care network, what kind of future would you, do you envision in a, in a bigger future, bigger dreaming kind of way? How are you hoping to like situate yourself? Yeah, I think what we realized in the process of like a bunch of people having long-term anti-capitalist support was that we could let go of some of the things that weren't working in our lives. And that meant for some of us leaving our normative family structures, being able to take more risks on behalf of the world. Specifically, I think that like what ended up happening is that a bunch of us got really involved and interested in the idea of family abolition. Abolition comes from slavery abolition or prison or police abolition. And abolition in that way, as Ruthie Gilmore would say, like had something to do with destroying systems of abuse and oppression, but it also has to do with the production of systems that mean that we don't need things like prisons, police. You know, what are the what is the what do we have to build 
in our society that means that we no longer need police and prisons. Well, we need a lot of other stuff. We need a lot of communication and a lot of care and a lot of other forms of solidarity that don't exist on a large enough level right now to mean that we would be able to move away from those things. And I think with the family abolition, it's it's similar. Imagining that the nuclear family produces like identities and ways of living that are so entangled in capitalism and shitty power relations that in order to build a world where we don't need to rely on these sort of small alienated structures, the nuclear family, to protect us from the world that we we need to like both destroy structure that nuclear family structure because it makes most of us sick in some way as we also like are building alternative structures of support where we could actually live and be people together in a much less competitive much more loving way and so a pretty good number of people that were really involved in like using the hologram in their lives now are like Forming, we formed this like reading and action group for family abolition. And we're really trying to like talk through the ways that in our lives, through family structures and like the many ripple effects of nuclear family structures, that we end up reproducing a bunch of shit from capitalism and from white supremacy and in our lives. And we would really like to remake the way that we do family. And we'd like that to be like a social movement. And I think that this is like one example of what can happen when you feel a supported part of the world, that you can begin to make choices based on desire and also develop new ideas for like how to organize life. The the meta thing to me about that that's so interesting is that I think the hologram and family abolition are an example of the structures we can build very slowly so that if there is a big revolution, like if we no longer do have national borders, how do we not just go ahead and reproduce our lives as they have been. Don't we want to have a new world to also live in in our day-to-day life? Don't we want to have systems in place where we don't end up just reproducing all of the bullshit that we want to get away from? What I'm really curious about is I want to see what happens when people have long-term stability through their friends in a way that they actually trust. What risks can they take then in a way that is not alone, that comes from having energy and support? In a big way, I just really want to see new forms of political risk-taking that are collective and come from an abundance of care and support. It feels quite theoretical, but I think that is also real and what's happening. You gave me this Workers' Aquarium and also this info about... Social Spa for Collective Mutation. If you want to to speak a little bit about that, I'd love to hear it. In some way, my main interest is in the idea of work, it always has been. Like, what is our work, really? There is wage work. We have to perform economic self-defense in so many ways. And one of those ways is, like, working our asses off to make enough money to pay rent, of course. Okay. But then, like, for a long time, I've been wondering, what is our work in the apocalypse? And especially for people that are comfy. Mm -hmm. I'm just dying to know. I'm at the edge of my seat. (laughs) Like, You know, and I think over and over again, for 15 years or something, my work has been to just to just poke at that. What the heck are we doing as the world is on fire and why don't we feel it? Mm-hmm. Are we in an apocalypse? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I don't think it's going to get easier and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. And I, I'm talking about myself as I'm talking about everybody else. You know, I'm talking about like my own sense of stuckness. Like, I don't know what the fuck to do. You know, and I, I got an invitation to do a project in Switzerland and of course, it most of the work of that project was going to happen in October during the beginning of the genocide. 
a lot of my political education has come from Palestinian people. It was really hard for me to figure out how to put effort into a project happening in one of the most privileged places in the world when I know what's happening to most of the world. And and I don't know, like, I just didn't know how to deal with that. (laughs) The invitation of all things was to work in a spa, to to create a project in a spa in Switzerland. And I was like, what? How the heck? Like, in Gaza, they can't get access to water. You know, like, I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? And why am I going to work for a bunch of white people in the most privileged place in the world? Were they looking for something close to the hologram when they when they said project or could it be like anything? Anything. You know, I've mostly been an artist for ages. And so, like, I think they wanted what I wanted to give them. And I was like, do you really want what I want to give you? Because I want to figure out how to make a place where you can go to change when you don't know how to change. And so that's what the social spa for collective mutation is. It's like. It's really supposed to be, it's like a process. There's like six baths and you go through one at a time. And the idea is that like, I don't know. I don't know how you're going to change. I know you can't do it alone. And I know that it's not necessarily like conscious, but I made a space and a time for people to go when they know they need to change and they don't know how. The one the first space that you go into is a smash room. And so like while you're in the hot baths, you're also hearing people scream and throw shit. You, it's like a rage room, or like where you like you take plates and like throw them on the on the wall above this bath where you throw plates. It says, "I'm willing to lose my blank if if it means we get closer to blank." And like, there's a little meditation, and people, I'm asking people to like think about what they're willing to lose in order to get something impossible to happen for the collective. And so there's there's plate smashing. There's I made some mosaics. There's a bath filled with cold water and Swiss money. So it's like really, really the coldest water ever. And as well as like some really sweet meditations slash like contracts to burn that say that we are willing to take risks on behalf of the world. But it's in some ways it's like it's a prototype. It's a waste of time. But it's also a real honest attempt at making a space without maybe even people in the space talking about privilege, maybe like feeling it, seeing it, and then like like working with the fact that it, privilege and power are not the same thing. And that part of why they're comfortable and performing a type of ignorance about not everybody, but many people are performing a kind of ignorance about the state of the world is because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to change and to, to respond. And nobody does. And that's not any individual's fault. So like we do need collective spaces for that type of thinking to happen. So yeah, I guess I'm trying to just really complicate privilege. And on the way to doing that, I think I I came to like an image that has been really helpful to me. And it's a little bit strange, but like when I was researching Baden, where the spa is, I looked at these old Roman mosaics that were that used to be there because this is like part of the Roman Empire and there's lots of like ancient baths with mosaics. And one of the most common images in the mosaics was this creature that has like a like the head and upper body of a horse or a cow and the like the the anterior of a fish or a snake and it's called a hippocampus that animal like it really appears as like an all-terrain vehicle like it's like you know it can live anywhere right it's got it's got hooves it's got fins like it's perfect it's got everything but the more i thought about it the more i was like actually that thing can't live anywhere it's got everything, but also, like, where where can something survive where it, oh, it has to drag its butt with its two front legs 
but it like also couldn't swim because its two front legs have hooves and like it's got no paddles, you know, like. And so I really relate to the hippocampus. It's like so like configured for everything. Like we're I think privilege means like so many options, so much access, so many tools that actually like like you become almost like like unable to do anything. Like maybe the hippocampus could live at the in a swamp, maybe, which is where I'm from. So, OK, relatable. Or maybe it could live at the edge of a pool, like where its feet could be dry and its butt could be wet. Or maybe it could live in space where there's no gravity and its butt wouldn't drag. I don't know. But like, I'm really like, OK, so now like I'm, I feel very happy to have like a, an image to to use to relate to this because it's like it's such a wild feeling. Like, what does the hippocampus do on a burning planet? Were you able to access any kind of like this came out of it, this changed, or is it, is it not so concrete as that? We'll see. Like, it's, it's going to be open for two months. You know, I'm really interested in, like, a type of deep, slow change that is nearly imperceptible, but that we know is happening. With a hologram, too, it's like people do change, but it's like, it's slow. It's like three, five years in, you know, and I, but that's what I believe in. There's also, like, such thing as political pressure. There's also, like, strategies to speed up that process. And I've never had the guts to use them. And so, like, while I'm working in this sort of, like, subliminal, like, like really well-intentioned but slow, imperceptible change making, I'm just starting to wonder, like, how do you push that in a way that maybe we haven't seen before, like, or a way we have seen before, but maybe I've just never, I have never had the guts to try because I think, you know, things are getting to a point. <laughs> and maybe that long, infinitely slow subliminal change isn't, you know, that's not cutting it. And so, like, how do you, what, what else is there besides, like, using shame and guilt to, like, push people? <laughs> I haven't had the guts or the interest, really, to push people. It's just not my way. Yeah. But I'm also curious, when is it time and how would I learn how to do that? Or if it's not me, like, how do we learn how to do that? And when is it time? And it's like, it's not so much about like guts, but like, when are the conditions right? How will we know? And what will that look like? I had a friend yesterday say like, I do want to change people. In so many ways, I think we've been taught not to say that and that that's not okay. And I wonder when it is. We are facing so many disasters, and those disasters are built on so many wrong assumptions and on so many big old mistakes in how we do stuff. We do need to change, and how do we do that in a way that feels ethical, that gives energy, and like produces change in a way that's not harmful? You just heard from Cassie Thornton. Cassie is an artist and activist who makes a safer space for the unknown, for disobedience, and for unanticipated collectivity. Her 2020 book, The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future, is available from Pluto Press. You'll find more about her in the show notes. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body and work. The theme music was composed by me and features the voice of performer and actress Lori Baldwin. Sweat airs every second Tuesday of the month at 13 hours Central European time on Calava Radio, Free Radio's Berlin Brandenburg, broadcasting on 88.4 FM in Berlin, 90.7 FM in Potsdam, and streaming online at fr-bb.org. Afterwards, it's available for streaming wherever you get your podcasts. 
Sweat is an unpaid labor of love. If you have the means to financially support the show, you'll find a link to my Patreon in the show notes. Your support is warmly appreciated. Thanks so much, and until next time.